Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, Mafia, and our contributors at Patreon. 117 years ago, on December 26th of 1900, the Northern Lighthouse Board, or NLB of Scotland, sent the relief vessel Hesperus out to a rock island lighthouse in the Flannan Isles to the island known as Eileen Moor, or the Big Island. The Hesperus was bringing a young third assistant lightkeeper named Joseph Moore to the island, along with food and water for him and the two men that would remain after the relieved man returned to shore. This was not the only reason the Hesperus was headed out, however. There was a looming question hanging over this journey, and that question was, why was the light not in operation 11 days ago when a vessel passed by on December 15th? Third assistant lightkeeper Moore and everyone on board knew the light hadn't been seen for days. Mr. Moore must have watched anxiously as they approached the island. The first sign something was not right at the station was the fact that the signal flag, indicating a relief vessel was expected, had not been hoisted. As they continued their approach, Captain Harvey of the Hesperus noticed that none of the three lightkeepers on the island were coming down to meet them at the eastern landing. The rules stated that one man must always remain on duty with the light, but at least one, if not two, of the others should have been making their way down to the landing. Harvey blew the ship's horn to make sure they now knew the relief vessel was closing in. No one came. Captain Harvey now ordered a signal flare to go up. Moore must have stared intently at the island. Something was not right, and he likely knew it in his bones. He must have thought it was a fluke. After all, the E. Lean Moore Lighthouse had an appointed observer at Gallonhead on the Isle of Lewis, just 18 miles to the southeast. He'd not reported the light being out of service, and he checked on it every day. Still, no one responded to the signal flare. Being the relief lightkeeper, Moore knew the three men currently stationed on Eileen Moore well. They were James Ducat, Principal Lightkeeper, Thomas Marshall, Second Assistant Lightkeeper, and Donald MacArthur, Occasional Lightkeeper. The First Assistant Lightkeeper and Second in Seniority, William Ross, was quite lucky not to have been on the island at this time, as we'll soon find out. He had taken ill and had not been able to return yet. It was inconceivable to Moore that none of those three hardy and responsible men had heard the ship's horn or seen the flare. Whatever was wrong with the light must have been a bigger problem than they'd all imagined. A feeling of doom likely overtook Moore's mind as they drew in closer to the eastern landing. Captain Harvey blew the ship's horn one more time just to be sure they heard it. Unfortunately, the only movement of any kind were puffins and gannets on the steep rocky cliff between the landing and the top of the island where the lighthouse stood 280 feet above. Captain Harvey put his second mate, McCormick, and a seaman in a rowboat with third assistant keeper Moore and sent them ashore. Moore stepped nervously onto the landing and started the arduous 280-foot climb up towards the Eileen Moore Lighthouse. One can only imagine what was going through his mind as he climbed that steep hill, seeing the darkened light tower above and knowing the regiment that these three men all tightly adhered to. As he approached the gate to the walled lighthouse station compound, he noted that it was closed. 
He passed through it and moved toward the station itself, and that door was closed as well, but not locked. It would be hard to imagine what was going through his mind as he opened the door to the main building. The light, out for days. No sign of life, and him alone on the island now, trying to find out what was going on. He entered the building and saw that the door to the kitchen was standing open, and he made his way into that room. It was clean and neat. No fire had been in the fireplace for days. The clock had stopped, meaning it hadn't been wound in at least a week, and the men's bunks had not been slept in. Moore made his way through the building he knew so well, up into the tower, looking everywhere for Ducat, Marshall, and MacArthur. There was no trace of them. He returned down to the landing, informing the Hesperus's second mate that the lighthouse was abandoned. He could not find a single soul. Several men came ashore, and they canvassed this, the largest of the Flannan Isles, in a desperate search for any clue to the disappearance. Unfortunately, night was coming, and no evidence could be found before darkness fell. James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur were never seen again. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. We seemed to stand for an endless while, though still no word was said. Three men alive on Flannan Isle, who thought on three men dead. From the poem, Flannan Isle, by Wilford Wilson Gibson. Join us tonight for part one of our series on the mystery of the missing Flannan Isle's lightkeepers. And we're back. Oh, that's pretty good. You sound just like Scotty. <laughs> no, I, well, that's, I'm going to spare people. That's all you're going to hear tonight. Do you remember last week when I said, did you get one of our new coffee mugs that came in? <laughs> yes, I did. Of course I did. Uh, what now? Well, it turns out there's an issue with it. Kind, kind of a, what I would call a major issue. Oh, really? What is that? Apparently the white parts of the graphics are coming off super easy. Well, like how easy? Well, one listener simply put a cold drink in them and poor Astonishing Al's face fell off just from the condensation (laughs) right in front of it. (laughs) Oh, dear. Ironically, the distressed look on them is accurate. They really are distressed. Yeah, and watching his face fall off is distressing as well. (laughs) Certainly. Well, he's a skull, so yeah. (laughs) Look, folks, this is our first merch crisis. We called a public relations firm that specializes in these kind of fiascos, and they promptly hung up on us when we told them all we had was a $20 bill and a get-out-of-jail-free card. But... Yeah. We're going to make things right. Yes, we are. If Astonishing Al's face is falling off of your mug, send an email to our Astonishing Merch team, and this is not, by the way, their fault at all, at blackmountainprinting, all one word, blackmountainprinting, at gmail.com. Attach a picture of the problem mug for our records and send your name and address, and we will get you a new one, free of charge, of course. Yeah, at first we thought it was just some of the orange ones, but it seemed like some of the blue ones are having an issue as well. So as the CDC likes to say from time to time, everyone is at risk. <laughs> well, that's, that is really not that funny. Uh, <laughs> neither is the mug situation, and we really shouldn't have had them all stuck on by hand. So <laughs> Yeah, no, well, since the first batch clearly had a production problem and is also sold out, we'll be taking care of these defective cups first with the incoming fixed mugs. 
Then we have a second batch on order as well. And don't worry, the manufacturer has sorted out the issue. My point being, be patient with us as we get this machine spooled up again. And we sincerely apologize for any inconvenience. Yes, of course we do. Well, okay, two quick reminders, especially since we've already mentioned it a few times. We'll both be in Atchison, Kansas, courtesy of the Chasing Earhart Project, July 18th through the 21st and are having a meet and greet with the Generation Y guys that week as well. So see our Facebook page or Facebook group page for details. We should actually ask Tess to make an info page on our website for these events for easy access for people that like can't get to Facebook and stuff like that. Uh, I already did. So Okay, good deal. <laughs> yeah, so you, if you folks want to know, just go to astonishinglegends.com. We created a new section called Events. So just scroll down there past the uh, episode selection of the most recent episodes, and you'll see all the information and some very really? lovely photos. Yeah. So you, you guys already did that? I wasn't, I was completely, wow. No, I told you I did that, and then uh, you just never checked the website, which I don't blame well, you because it's like, busy it's like researching. You're making the sausage. <laughs> you don't really need to taste it. So if you go to the webpage for this episode specifically, You'll also see it there. So that's past the reference links and books and all that good stuff. So you'll see the information there as well. So it's all on there. So if you have any trouble, let us know. Oh, and, and here's something fun as well. We had a really great glowing review written by one of our listeners about our show. He goes by Monster Dugan. He reached out to us on uh, Twitter. His handle there is at Monster Dugan. And uh, said he was writing up a review. And I guess it's kind of a blog. He's going to be reviewing uh, different shows. But like, man, I read it. Re of course, it's really glowing and congratulatory in a sense, but very uh, comprehensive in a listing and description of our greatest hits. So that was pretty cool. You can check that out at morbidlybeautiful.com slash astonishing hyphen legends hyphen podcast. So go check that out. All right. Now that we've gotten done talking turkey, it's time to remember that everything leads back to Scotland. Aye, laddie. Well, I, okay. Uh -huh. I, I lied. I did, impression a, out of you. <laughs> I did it. I tricked you. There was one more. I did it in yeah. the script. All right. But that's it. <laughs> okay. So the cold open told a lot of the story. I think it's an interesting opening. It tells you what's so intriguing about this. Some of you guys have probably heard this story, but I'm betting a lot of people haven't as well. We have just a couple of messages from people who live in the general vicinity who'd not heard of it. So that kind of excites us. Maybe this is a new story, but it is out there. It's just one of those weird things that there are answers, none of them totally satisfying, which is totally the type of mystery we love. Yeah. So before we go any further, we did want to mention that our primary source for this particular episode was a book called Lighthouse, The Mystery of the Aileen Moore Lighthouse Keepers by Keith McCloskey, who we are trying to get on the show. We have word out to him, but there are several layers of publishers and marketing people between us and him. And also, as you may have sensed, we produce things generally the day before they're supposed to be posted. Sorry to our entire post-production team, including <laughs> Sarah and Ryan. Um, um, we're just, we're, we're going to hurt you. It's just, that's just, we can't yeah, help it. Yeah, sorry. But, but uh, hopefully we'll hear back from Mr. McCloskey. But if we don't, we shall wing it as we often do. But uh, we did want to say that his book is really great. It's well-organized. It's thoughtful and extremely well-researched. I um, really enjoyed reading it, and I enjoyed his approach because he's skeptical about some of the longer shot ideas behind what happened with the lighthouse keepers, but he touches on everything, and he does it, like I said, with an open mind, like we do, and I, I like the way his book is laid out as well because I, I think he would enjoy our show, honestly, because he, he seems to think like we do about things, so... 
and in addition to that, he's respectful. He's very reverent, and he really went the extra mile to get into how lighthouses worked. And there was a lot of research to do there. There's also a really good interview with him. It's a YouTube radio channel called Where Did the Road Go?, which also takes a look at uh, unusual, spooky, but mysterious topics. They're on the web as well as www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And they had an interview with Mr. McCloskey. That was interesting as well because that was conversational. So it's fun. Just It's like you're being told a story of mystery of long ago at the turn of the century. So that was a lot of fun too. And, and a lot of good information came from that as well. Yeah, that was a great interview. And thank you for sending me that link for us. I think uh, before we get started, one of the first things we should talk about is, is why there are lighthouses. It's a common thing, but you don't really think about it. I mean, obviously everybody's heard of lighthouses, but McCloskey points out in his book that the number of shipwrecks and the loss of life around the wilder parts of the Scottish coastline and I'm quoting here from his book, left both seamen and those engaged in commercial trading to push for something to be done, as the number of wrecks ran into thousands upon thousands and stood as a testament to the dangers faced by men who made their living from the sea. The roll call of shipwrecks ran from the earliest fishing vessels up and beyond the oil tanker Brer, stranded in the Shetlands in 1993, as recently as 1993. So, that is interesting to me because I didn't really understand this. I love going into these, you know, especially after getting out of the Fertile Crescent and changing gears a little bit. <laughs> oh, just a, just a few 10,000 years or so. Yeah. 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 Just doing a little palate cleanser there. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating was about how these lighthouses are paid for. It's kind of like we used to call it in when I lived in New York, if you bumped into somebody who was asking for money and might seemed a little bit too dangerous to say no to, you, we, we call that street tax. Oh, street, <laughs> street yeah. tax, sure. Street I thought you tax. said uh, it was a term like, uh, well, I just lighthouse that guy. Yeah, No, I, no, no, but this means, is but... what's happening with the lighthouses. The ships apparently have to pay if they pass the lighthouse or use the lighthouse. Yeah then this money goes into a kitty. Oh, it's like a swear jar. Well, they're all using it. Someone has to pay for it. Plus, it's a lot of international shipping. I imagine it's like port fees. You know, you have uh, uh, people controlling, you have a pilot that has to take over the ship. So there's, you yeah, know, the some cost vibe. Yeah, you, these things aren't yeah. cheap. But they do save lives. And, you know, when you're talking about knowing more about it and what people generally know about it, I would say there's a lot of people that have a very romantic notion of what it's like to live at one. There's always people that say, well, <laughs> that old song, it was in um, Clockwork Orange. I want to marry a lighthouse keeper and keep him yes. company. It yeah. sounds idyllic and like, oh, I'll get a lot of reading done, possibly. But also, <laughs> it's a tremendous hardship. It's not for everyone. That's one thing that Mr. McCloskey says. It's like, it's a certain type of person that can do this. Much like in the Navy, it's a certain type of sailor that can go on a submarine. Yeah, I believe he has a quote in his book, something that a particular lighthouse keeper had told him during the course of his interviews for his book. It said something to the effect that we were ordinary men doing extraordinary jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That really seems to sum it up. Yeah. And imagine if you didn't like the person you're working with, you know, some of these uh, folks are handpicked, as we'll see tonight. That was the case here for the Flannan Isles Lighthouse. But imagine that roommate you have, possibly, and it's like, they're okay, but you don't really want to hang out with them. <laughs> and you certainly don't want to see them 24-7 
for two months straight. Well, that's the thing. And if you haven't had a roommate, I'm thinking a lot of our listeners either have had or are in the process of having them now. That's a unique life experience, let me tell you. And yeah, <laughs> shacking up with somebody, especially someone that you're not having a relationship with, is a, <laughs> well, a even, trying Even time. that can be trying as well. But imagine that your coworkers as well, you know, that person in the office, it's like, you know what, this project's enough. I'm glad I don't have to see them all the time. Well, here's a project. It's just all the time. You're working in shifts. You don't really get to do it by yourself because, as we'll see tonight, there's a three-man rule just for the workload. I mean, it's a lot like Beetlejuice. You can't leave the house. You're stuck in there. No, someone's always got to be there because, again, in case something happens... But it's not just that. There's nothing to do. You're on a rock. You're on an island. There's no even any other people. I mean, some lighthouses are on the shore and in towns, but apparently some lighthouse keepers have said that even the ones that are in the cities are the most loneliest ones to work at because they're still trapped up there. But then I, you know, I saw interviews with other lighthouse keepers who said, you know, we were very respected. We were treated like vicars. We were treated like doctors, you know, that sort of thing. Well, it's, yeah. But on the other hand, you're isolated even when you're surrounded by people. Exactly. I mean, it's a specialized job. So you're saluted and then kind of forgotten about it. And, you know, this is, of course, back at the turn of the century. Nowadays, many of them, especially this one, these are automated. So nobody has to go through. They all are. uh, In Scotland. Yes, exactly. Since 1971, actually. And Keith McCloskey interviewed the last two remaining lighthouse keepers, retired at this point, who had worked at the Flannan Isle Lighthouse. So he was able to get a real good insight onto what the life was like from guys who had actually been there and knew what it was like. So that's why there's a lot of great information and insight just about the lifestyle, which leads to the setup here. And a lot of the mystery, because that will play in. But think about this. It's not just the maintenance and, uh, you know, the upkeep, of course, that's a lot of the routine of that. But theoretically and practically, you were in charge of hundreds of lives and cargo. If you don't do your job, you screw up. They run aground or crash and sink. You know, that's part of your responsibility. So there's a tremendous amount of responsibility on these people, and they take it very seriously. Well, yeah, in a lot of ways, they're like air traffic controllers, except that they don't have radar, and they don't know when their traffic is showing up and where it's going. All they're doing is just trying to keep it from crashing. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, again, the light is all. It's just, it's keeping the light lit. It's making sure it's maintained and uh, properly going. And again, it's a very important function because without it, many ships and many people have been lost throughout the ages. Yeah. And that's the number one rule is the light stays on no matter what the light stays on at all costs. And the way it works is the people that work at the station, there's a hierarchy, there's a rank essentially. And we have what are called the PLK, which is the principal light keeper. And then you have a couple of ALKs, assistant lighthouse keepers. And there would be two or three of them. If there was three, then one may be ashore. And then there's the OLK, which is the occasional lighthouse keeper, which is what one of the gentlemen who disappeared was. He had the misfortune of being on the, uh, at the Flannan Post. Yeah. Imagine if you're uh, Ross, well, you squeak by that one. I mean, you were sick, but that could have been you out there. It's funny that you should say that because Ross was technically second in command because he was the first assistant lighthouse keeper. And he was gone because he was sick, but that was not the first time that he had had to leave the island. There's another event that took place with Mr. Ross 
that centers around a steam-powered cable cart system that they had on the island to haul their supplies up from the landings to the lighthouse. Right. There's a small steam engine in a shack that's adjacent to the lighthouse, and that's what powers the pulling of these carts across the island. Which is how they get their supplies up and down from the relief vessels that come. So Ross was in one of these, apparently riding up with some supplies, when the cable broke or the brakes failed and it went sailing back down towards the landing and it was going so fast he couldn't get out. He just had to ride it. And at the end, it came to a crash at the landing. He flew out of it up into the air and then landed 15 feet below on the rocks and Mm. broke his arm. Jeez, well, he's lucky. And uh, he could have died easily. And it just so happened that the uh, Hesperus, the same vessel that we mentioned in the opening, was there that day because it had brought the supplies. So they just put him on the boat and took him ashore so he could heal up. So um, this was, in his case, that was bad luck. And then he got sick, which some people might say was bad luck, but it turned out to be good luck for him because he wasn't there when whatever happened that caused the other three men to disappear happened. But getting back to how the relationships work between the men, it's a rigorous military structure, really, even though they're not technically in the military. And the PLK, the principal light keeper, The buck stops with him. No matter what happens, whether it's directly his responsibility or not, it's his responsibility. So it's just like the captain of a ship, frankly. If something goes wrong, whether it's a result of someone that works under you, which obviously you'd be more directly responsible for because you're supervising them, but also even with an act of God, and it results in the loss of equipment or gear or people for, uh, you know, heaven forbid, that ultimately comes down to you as the PLK. That's why you are considered the PLK, the principal lighthouse keeper. And that is what James Ducat was at this particular station. Well, you need hierarchy because in a extreme situation like that, that's why you see, uh, you know, you've seen all those uh, POW movies in, uh, from World War II and that they still maintain rank. In those tough situations, that's when you need it especially because imagine three guys with no rank, they're just co-workers on the same level, all arguing. Well, that could yeah. be a crisis and nothing gets done. So the opinion, right or wrong, of this central person has to be followed. So at least it's like, well, look, you're a subordinate. We need to get this done. This has to be done whether you agree with it or not. And that alone may be a factor in what happened here. But that's the setup for all of these lighthouses. This is Matt Villeneuve. And when I'm not listening to my children laugh at the ghosts in the house, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. All right. One of our uh, researchers in the Astonishing Research Corps of the Ark, Kristen, dug up these rules from another lighthouse called the Bell Rock Lighthouse, which we're going to talk about tonight. And these rules, I wanted to read some of these rules because they really give you a sense of what this hierarchy and the structure is like. These are just excerpted pieces from the rules. There's many, many pages, but I just wanted to pick the ones that would paint the picture. The keepers of the Bell Rock Lighthouse are hereby instructed and directed to keep the lamps of the reflecting apparatus burning bright and clear from the going away of daylight in the evening till the return of daylight in the morning. The better to obtain this purpose, the period of night is to be divided into watches, and each keeper in rotation will mount guard for three hours. The fountains of the lamps being daily supplied with oil, the wicks must be frequently trimmed in the course of the night, but more particularly at the end of each watch. That really tells you how it lays out there. And I want to talk a little bit about this before I move on to the next one. One thing that 
is interesting about this. Well, first of all, it mentions a three-hour watch, and I'm not sure why, because the standard everywhere else that we researched said that it was four on and then eight off in terms of the watches, and it wasn't like you were just goofing off those eight hours that you were cooking or whatever else. Yeah. Here's another one. The motion of the machinery of the reflector frame must be so regulated that one of the lights of the natural appearance and one of those colored red shall be exhibited to the mariner in their most brilliant effect. In the course of every four minutes, that's what this particular lighthouse, each one, by the way, I'm interjecting here, each one had a different specific pattern that it would flash with regard to how long does it take the light to come around? What does the pattern say? What color does it show? For instance, with the Flannanile light, it would reflect white to sea and red to land. And each one has to have its own signature so that if a ship comes along and it's totally lost and it doesn't know where it is, it should be able to look in its guide and see the pattern of the lighthouse if the captain doesn't recognize it just on sight. He should be able to look it up and say, oh, this must be Flannan Isles because it's flashing three times and then a fourth one and it takes it five minutes to come around or whatever. So th- that's really interesting to me. So, And that's a mechanical apparatus that they have to maintain to make sure that people understand where they are because nothing would be worse than spotting a lighthouse and thinking it's a different place. It's the same thing as no lighthouse at all because if they all did the same thing, and I didn't really think about this, it's not just a white light that goes around in a circle. It has to have a specific autograph so that you know where you are. So I I thought that was interesting. And that's something that they have to maintain as well. The keeper on watch will look out for the occurrence of foggy or snowy weather, and during the continuance of either, the bells must be kept tolling both day and night. And that's for the Bell Rock, which was a much older lighthouse. Uh, Foghorns also suffice in these situations. The light keeper performing the duty of the first department shall in the course of the day supply the lamp fountains with oil and the burners with cotton. He shall clean the reflecting apparatus and all the utensils connected with the trimming of the lights. He shall also take his turn in mounting guard both day and night. So this explains what the duties are. It's just constant maintenance and cleaning. The day work of the second department includes the cleaning of the machinery case, windows, walls, floors, and apparatus connected with the light room not already specified as coming under the first department. He shall likewise clean the balcony and library, the books of which must be dusted or cleaned on the first Saturday of every month. The keepers in this department will also take his turn at day and night watches. The third department includes the cleaning of the bedroom, kitchen, and provision storeroom, together with the passages, stairs, and whole utensils connected with these apartments. He shall likewise cook the provisions and take charge of them from the time of their being served out until they are set upon the table in a prepared state. The keeper acting in this department shall only be subject to the performance of night watches. The other thing that's interesting here is the PLK, the principal light keeper, doesn't have to cook, just like the captain of a ship doesn't have to cook. (laughs) Well, you may not want them to cook, unless they're a good cook. and then uh, Yeah, Yeah, unless they're a good cook. Right. The light keepers are hereby prohibited from receiving, bringing, or allowing to be brought to the lighthouse any spiritus liquors as private stores. The acting principal light keeper is held responsible for the conduct of his assistants and the master of the tender for the conduct of his men in this respect. And then this last one that points back to the hierarchy that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Should any differences of opinion arise among the light keepers about the meaning of these instructions, the duty shall in such cases be performed agreeably to the explanation and orders of the acting principal light keeper. 
in the same manner in all matters to which these instructions may not seem fully to apply. The orders of the acting principal lightkeeper are hereby declared to be binding upon the respective lightkeepers. So again, coming back to what Forrest and I were talking about a few minutes ago with regard to this hierarchy and living on top of each other, that's what's happening. And it's not just like you're a bunch of buds hanging out. You've got a boss and subordinates. And anybody who's been in that position knows that you can't be necessarily best friends. It's not conducive. It's going to be a problem. It's like you said, Forrest, about everyone all having the same rank. You're just never going to get anywhere. Conversely, living for weeks on end on a deserted island, or in some cases, some lighthouses, they don't even have land under them. It's just a a tower in the ocean. And you're inside the building, and maybe there's a little ledge you can go outside and fish every once in a while, but that's it. And they're all in there together. So coming back to the whole roommate thing and imagining what that must be like, and what if you get posted with someone you don't like? Well, you know, <laughs> that is, I mean, that has happened before with uh, not great results. But it's a great job if you love crushing solitude and routine. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but I mean, there's you know, it's a necessary job. It needs to be done. The point we're trying to make is these people are very professional and it's a certain very professional and serious and sober-minded individual that usually does it. And occasionally you get somebody who's a little wound up too tight. Well, yeah. And that's one of the things that's mentioned in McCloskey's book is the idea of people that have bad reputations that no one wants to work with, or they might refuse to work with, or they might say, no, I'm not going with that guy, or let's, oh, Lord, they're putting him with us. And I have a a friend, one of my friends growing up, he used to be a technical diver, very dangerous job. My friend wasn't working with demolitions, but he worked on pipelines in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. There was a guy on the boat, which he worked on. I I could name the boat, but I probably shouldn't. So I still have a T-shirt from it that he gave me. (laughs) But there's a guy on the boat. My friend didn't like the dude. The dude was extremely racist and just kind of a jerk and hypocritical, and they would get in fights all the time, but they're trapped on this boat for like six months. Here's the problem with that. My buddy would be down at the bottom of the ocean in this heavy suit walking and like welding pipelines, and the dude that was in charge of using the global positioning system to keep the ship steady above him was that guy. And so what would happen is he would sometimes intentionally let it drift. And I mean, this is a huge vessel, and it would yank my friend back like a few feet through the water while he was trying to work. He couldn't prove the guy was doing it on purpose, but this is what I'm talking about. This is the kind of thing. It's like, what is happening? And people are starting to mess with each other in these situations. And you could see how that could devolve into a nasty situation, especially in a place like a isolated lighthouse. So it's just something to think about in the big picture. Yeah, this job of lighthouse keeping is, you know, not that critically dangerous, but there is danger. People get hurt. It's not uncommon for occasionally somebody going missing or falling to their death or, you know, it's an industrial job. So that happens. What this case is about or why this was so sensational and shocking at the time is that all three of them ended up missing at the same time with very little evidence of what happened. So it was a sensational case of the day in 1900. The other thing, coming back to the isolation component, one of the things that McCloskey goes real deep on in his book, which I thought was really fascinating, and another thing I hadn't thought about, was that the isolation was so severe that 
he would compare it to space travel or deep space. And he mentioned how whenever space organizations, you know, specifically NASA, are looking at putting astronauts into space, the first thing that they consider is their psychological ability to handle something like that because it's so isolating and hard for certain personalities to deal with. And he even mentions somebody who goes in for an interview with the NLB in Scotland and is back out on the street in 10 or 15 minutes and has the job. Not to disparage other people who were certainly qualified, but just it was the last thing on their minds to ask, you know, how is this for you? And, and when the lighthouse was on the mainland, you could have your family right there with you. But when the lighthouse is on what they call a rock or the, or the rock in this case, like with the Flannan Isles lighthouse, it's too dangerous for the family to be out there and to live there. So what happens is they stay ashore on the mainland and you get shore leave technically. You get to come and go and you would go stay with them for a while and then come back and do your duty. And that's the way it was with the really remote ones. But he tells a story in his book, McCloskey does of a lightkeeper who was getting undressed for bed and had not bothered to pull the curtains. This is a quoted section. There was no need, the lightkeepers being the only human inhabitants of the island. The night was pitch black, and as he casually looked out the window, he saw a face staring at him. Apparently, his scream was something to hear. The face belonged to a member of a yacht crew whose vessel had come to anchor for the night on the other side of the island. So I guess well, somebody wandered up to say hello to the lighthouse kid, and the guy was naked in the window. So <laughs> he's a, Depending on where you're at, it's a good thing he didn't get shot. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but you're not expecting anything. And also the difference between that and, you know, having the temperament for space travel, which is a whole other set of, you know, psychological and emotional requirements that they screen you for, is that at least you can talk back to Earth. <laughs> There's some communication there. Yeah. At the turn of the century, there wasn't any. So you were basically stranded there. They did have a, a flag signaling system, of course, uh, but that's not like a conversation. If you're in trouble, you might be waiting a while to send up that signal or to get that word out that you're in trouble, and there's no direct communication to the mainland. Now, here in 1900, there was a telegraph. So... You know, that was a form, but again, there's no telegraph wires going to the lighthouse itself. So you're dependent on others for your supplies and survival and your well-being. Yeah, and in the case of the Flannan Isles station, what they had to do was put these disks up on the tower, and then they would hope that this guy back on shore, 18 miles away, would point his telescope at it like he was supposed to do every day and look for the disk that had the message on it. So and then if the message was said something like, send the relief boat or relief vessel needed or injury or something like that, then that guy lets the NLB know that a boat needs to go out, word goes to where the boat needs to leave from, then the boat comes out. The whole process takes a couple of days. So if everybody's not on their game, it could add more and more time to it, which is part of the reason that Ross was so lucky when he got flung out of the cable car and broke his arm that the ship was right there because he could have been stuck there on the island with his buddies setting his arm <laughs> yeah. while they waited a couple of days for the ship to show up and take him ashore and have him seen to. And as someone who had my arm broken and set incorrectly and then rebroken a few days later, I can tell you that is a very unpleasant experience. <laughs> well, let's talk about what type <laughs> of guys, though, were there at the time of the yeah. mystery here. What kind of people are we talking about? You know, of course, the principal lighthouse keeper, who was the big boss and the captain of the ship, his name was James Ducat. He was the one with the most experience. He had 22 years of experience as a lightkeeper. 
And four years of that was as a PLK. So James Ducat, here's a section on him actually from McCloskey's book. He was the son of a plowman born at Lunenbank Farm in the parish of Inverkeeler near a broth, <laughs> a broth yeah. on 11th August, 1856. He entered the service of the NLB as an ALK, an assistant lighthouse keeper, on the 21st of November, 1878 at the age of 22. He moved around to a lot of stations. He had a ton of experience. And by the time he got to the Flannan Isles, he was the most senior guy there, and he should have been. He had spent many, many years at many other lighthouse stations. When the guys first start out, they start out as supernumeraries, which they're kind of like, it's like they have to go on a circuit. They just go wherever they put you, and it can be all over. And you just get moved around and around and around until you move up in the ranks and you get to have a more uh, stable kind of life. So uh, it's interesting how that works. But So that's Ducat, the second assistant lighthouse keeper who was on the island at the time of the disappearance. That was Thomas Marshall. He was born in 1871. He entered the NLB at the age of 25 as an assistant lighthouse keeper in April 1976. And so he had moved around as well coming to the Flannan Isles on the 31st of August, 1899. So by the time the disappearance happened, he'd been there a few months, but he couldn't have been there much longer because when the disappearance happened, the Flannan Isles lighthouse, Aileen Moore, was less than a year old. It was 11 months old. When Marshall disappeared, he was only 29 years old, and he had been an assistant lightkeeper for four years and nine months. The third guy was William Ross, who we told you about, the guy that fell out of the uh, the cable car, and also had been sick. So he wasn't there, and he had been replaced by Donald MacArthur. Now, MacArthur, he's a wild card here because he actually was well-known for having a bad temper. Well, he's described as a hothead. A hothead, yeah. exactly. And maybe uh, maybe raise the wrist, tip the elbow a few times here and there. That's the implication was that he was the drinker, right? Well, so, and these... that's part of the reason I wanted to read that rule about the spirits. You're yeah. not supposed to have any. Can you imagine the ramifications of sneaking alcohol with a drinking person yeah. into that scenario. Well, imagine them drinking there. Imagine them, though, completely dry and angry and irritated that there's no booze. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. Uh, yeah. either way is not great for a not ill-tempered person, shall we say, under extreme situations. And it was also thought that he may have had, um, his family was on, I think, the main Isle of Lewis there close by. Yes, um, that's where yeah, the right. families were. But they had so. a croft going, which is, uh, and crofting is, it's a form of uh, tending the land in kind of a small scale here in a communal group for small scale food production. And it's kind of a particular thing to Scotland and the Highlands and the islands of Scotland. So it's kind of how people get by and grow food and raise animals. And he had been away from that. It was supposed to be a six-week stint, turned into going on to two months now, and no word of when this is going to end. Plus, it's, you know, Christmas is coming up. It's cold and nasty there, and so he's extra irritated. He wants to get back to his family, of course. So that's kind of the setup with him, is that he could be not very nice at this point and angry with the system and the job, and he just wants to get out of there. He was also a tailor, Oh. And he was well-respected on the mainland where all the families lived. So in spite of being a hothead, and in, in fact, when he disappeared, he was in the process of helping to build a church on the mainland in his free time. So he's multidimensional. Yeah, exactly. Well, so like you said, maybe he's a little bit of a wild card in this scenario here with these guys, but they've been working together so far. Everything's okay, but we don't know how long that's going to last here in this story. 
getting back to what we talked about at the very beginning of the show with regard to the Hesperus coming out to the island on the 26th of December 1900, that was a full 11 days after the Arch Tour, which was the passing vessel that we mentioned, came within six miles of the island and never saw the lights. Yeah, exactly. It was on its way from Philadelphia to Leith. Yes. It's an area north of the city of Edinburgh in Scotland, and uh, they had made a note in their log that the lighthouse light was not operational in bad weather conditions. Again, not a huge deal, but they made a note of it. It should have been visible. So that was perhaps the first time a ship or someone off the island made a note officially which would be reported later. Yes, and he had searched the horizon for it. Well, first of all, he didn't see the Flannan Isles at all, but that's not a big deal. Not seeing land, not that surprising. Not seeing the light is a big deal. And in fact, the light at the Flannan Isles was supposed to be visible for 24 miles. And he knew, at least initially, he thought he was within five miles of it. He actually corrected that later to six miles. Still, that's plenty in range to see the light. And he said that there was a very heavy sea that night. He did describe a very heavy sea with strong south-southwesterly wind, but he also said it was clear. And you're talking about the captain of the Arch Tour. Of the Arch Tour, yes. Captain Holman of the Arch Tour. So that's interesting. But that, as you said, his entry in his log is the first time that it was noted that there was a problem at the island. So you would think that that would have a sense of urgency to it. But unfortunately, he got a little bit sidetracked as he was heading to Leith because what happened uh, less than two days later? Well, uh, this may tie into the feeling of bad luck that this rock, this uh, Eileen Moore, has with not only the locals, but with seafaring legend here, because, yeah, within uh, 48 hours, the Arch Tour hit a rock and almost sank. Uh, yeah. And this is on their way to getting into port at Leith. But on December 18th, 1900, when the ship finally docked, they were able to pass that observation onto the Northern Lighthouse Board, I believe by telegraph. They made a report that, hey, something's up there. You guys should go check it out. But yeah, the Arch Tour barely made it into port themselves. So that's uh, right. And he and the captain delayed in reporting the lighthouse not being functioning because he got so sidetracked by the fact that he had run aground. And so that it took him a while. He actually admitted to the fact that he had forgotten about the lighthouse temporarily. So there was a delay there because the events of running aground overshadowed the fact that the lighthouse wasn't lit. Yeah, you get bigger problems at that point, just keeping the uh, the ship afloat. But on December 20th, a relief ship, the Hesperus, was dispatched to go check on the lighthouse because it's a lighthouse tender. That's the purpose of the ship. But it was unable to sail to Flannan from Breasgleet on the Isle of Lewis due to bad weather. So that's now delayed. And just to give you a picture here talking about the weather, it's really nasty <laughs> in this part of the North Atlantic off the western coast of Scotland. It's high seas, very choppy, really high constant winds. Just, it's hard to sail in anyway. And so this is not such a big deal with these delays. They're kind of used to that. But it puts some space between this mysterious event and anybody coming to check it out. Hi, I'm Erin in North Carolina. And when I'm not raising little legenders, I am listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. 
So here's another important thing to note, uh, by the way. That town, Briasgleet, is the town where the families of the lighthouse keepers live. Right. And that's the town where MacArthur was working on the church and was well-regarded before he disappeared, even though he was a hothead. <laughs> so uh, just, just something to keep in mind in, in terms of the big picture here. So yeah, the Hesperus didn't reach Flannan Isle until about noon on the 26th of December. It was a long time after because in addition to the delay with the message, and I mean, it was going to come out anyway, like you said, it was a lighthouse tender, but there wasn't an urgency to the message. And then it, it got held up for bad weather. And so by the time all everything played out, it was a full 11 days since the arch tour had first passed by and noticed that the light wasn't working. Now, in addition to this, there's also the observer who lives at Gallon Head, which is 18 miles southeast of the island. But what had happened was the NLB had given him a quote-unquote high-powered telescope. The magnification is not specified in McCloskey's book. And he was a gamekeeper, and he yeah. was well-regarded. And he also had two sons who were also gamekeepers. And they were all considered to be likely pretty good at sighting things from a distance because of the nature of their jobs. So they were offered, I believe it was eight pounds a year, to observe and make notes on the station at the Flannan Isles. And they were to look for signals from the disks that they would hang out that would, as I was just talking about a few minutes ago, that would tell them whether or not they needed a relief vessel sent out or if there were any other kinds of problems. And they were also supposed to keep track of days that the light wasn't lit. Right. Just keep in mind how bad the weather is. It's not unusual, they said, for him not to see the light, really, on some That's days. That's right, for or, days and days. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you don't really want to panic immediately because it could be natural weather conditions and visibility and all those factors. But he starts to get worried and he gets his sons employed basically in like, let's all keep an eye out constantly now and watch for this because he's starting to get worried. Yeah, exactly. And he was getting ready to report something on it. And uh, as a result of what happened that led to this story, things changed. And we'll talk about that in part two. But it's interesting, there wasn't really a system in place for everything is okay. There wasn't any way to confirm everything is okay. So that's something to remember with regard to how this all went down and how long it took the Hesperus to get out there and realize that uh, nobody was coming down to meet them at the landing. The, not only was the light out, nobody was coming down, and it didn't seem like they were expecting anyone either. So they saw no signal flag announcing their welcome or that they're ready to receive them, and none of the supply boxes were on the landings for restocking, which is how they made the exchange. Those boxes would get filled up with supplies and those would be hauled up to the lighthouse itself by means of this cable car pulled from either landing. There was a landing on the western side and also one on the eastern side. So there was no sign of them. So something's off. If they are still there, then something has held them up. This is an important exchange, you know, for their own livelihoods there, you know, at the lighthouse. And so it's not looking good with each of these kind of signs that something's amiss here, something's wrong. So as we said earlier, that's when Captain Jim Harvey sounded the uh, ship's horn and then eventually sent off a distress flare and still got no signal or no greeting, no response from the three light keepers. So at that point, a boat was launched from the Hesperus and uh, relief uh, lighthouse keeper Joseph Moore was put ashore, right? Yes. He's the young man mentioned at the top of the show who had to go up by himself and try to see 
what had happened yeah, uh, while to the, the three guys that he knew and worked with. Exactly. While two guys manned the away boat there, he's got to go yeah. up now by themselves. And again, as stated in the opening, he must have a bad feeling in the pit of his stomach at this point. Yeah, he's the red shirt in this scenario. Well, that would be the guy. <laughs> well, they, uh, I think the three guys uh, who were there ended up as red shirts because they might as well have vanished into uh, Adam's. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, yeah, there was no trace of them. But just imagine, like, you don't know what to expect. You're hoping that there is some kind of mechanical thing happening. They're working on something. Maybe they need help. And that's why they haven't come down to the landings to greet them and why the preparations haven't been made to receive them. So that's the best case scenario here. The worst case is, you know, there's been uh, some bodily injury or something happened. So that's got to be a consideration. And, and he's coming across this scene here as he gets to the compound. It doesn't really, to him at this point, doesn't look too amiss, at least with the property. Like I said, the main gate is closed. The front door is closed, but unlocked. He's not seeing a, a scene of too much devastation at this point. So he's still kind of wondering what's going on. And he, he enters the lighthouse. And at that point, there's still really no scene of uh, chaos or too much disarray. It looks pretty orderly, right? The beds are made. Yeah, the kitchen is cleaned up yeah. and reset. The beds are made. No one has slept in them. There are some articles of clothing missing. Right. So they know that they went out. But here's the strange thing. Two of them were dressed for the weather and one wasn't. Right. So, Two of the lighthouse keepers had put on their oil skins, which is a, a, usually a heavy uh, canvas or duck cloth that's been treated with a petroleum product to make it waterproof. So it, they're big, heavy garments. Plus they had ocean uh, sea boots. Two of them are off their hooks. But the third set for the lighthouse keeper that, again, by the rules, must remain behind as the other two venture forth, that's on the hook. So this third person went out without them. They think just in a shirt, you know. Well, yeah. And they deduced by the clothes that had been taken and what had been left behind that the person who went out just in his shirt sleeves, as they say, yeah, was MacArthur, the hothead tailor. Yeah. It, Sorry, it, I'm not sure that's fair. <laughs> we usually don't hear those two descriptors put together, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you do in this story. So uh, there's an idea of why that may have been. But as we said, somebody broke the rules. And even if there wasn't uh, hot-headedness involved, to me, again, and to a lot of people here, you would think that you would not break the rules unless something urgent was happening. Something he heard or saw or suspected happening outside needed his immediate attention, or it could have been a personal reason that he, he bolted out without uh, donning his weatherproof gear, his outerwear there. So that's unusual right there. Now, two things that I think are fascinating, but have always been ascribed to this story is that when Joseph Moore came in, what he noticed was that two things were amiss. There was a chair tipped over by the kitchen table, like somebody leapt out in a hurry out the door, and a half-eaten meal. But, Scott, is that true? Well, apparently not. At least McCloskey did his research, and according to his research, that stuff was actually taken by an author named Vincent Gaddis, who plugged that into the story after he took it from a poem and the poem, which is the same one we excerpted in the opening quote, was written about the Flannan Isle disappearance by Wilfred Wilson Gibson. And the lines in question, now, Mr. Gibson apparently wrote this poem in 1912. Yeah, he was in World War I as a private, but also a poet and, uh, you know, was friends with other literary figures at the time. 
and wasn't a bad poet. He's pretty good. He was, I think he had a play that was produced uh, sometime around there. But he wrote yes. a poem about this incident, and maybe a little poetic license had included that there was uh, the chair knocked over and a half-eaten meal. And what's interesting is that uh, then Vincent Gannis had kind of inflated the story for his own purposes, for his own writing, with claims that there were strange entries in the logbook by the lighthouse keepers, saying that the men were, you know, there, there was a terrible storm and that the men, they were uh, weeping and openly praying just to ride out the storm and for safety. And that seems to be fictional. <laughs> Here's the verse from Gibson's poem that Gladys took the information from about the chair and the meal, just real quick. Right. This is supposed to be describing the discovery of the room. Yet as we crowded through the door, we only saw a table spread for dinner, meat and cheese and bread, but all untouched and no one there. As though when they sat down to eat, Ere they could even taste, alarm had come, and they in haste had risen and left the bread and meat, for at the table head a chair lay tumbled on the floor. Aha. So there you go. There you go. Well, <laughs> so that winds up getting used by Gaddis. Gaddis is actually somebody we've mentioned before really? on the air, and I can't remember which show it was, no. but he is most famous for coining the expression the Bermuda Triangle. Okay, yes. No, he probably came up in uh, Electronic Fog or Flight 19 or probably both. Yeah, that's probably what it was. Yeah. Gaddis, he was born in 1913, died in 1997, mm. and he was a feature writer for the Elkhart Truth, a daily newspaper in Elkhart, Indiana. He also worked in PR for Studebaker Packard and Mercedes-Benz in South Bend, Indiana. And then he had a bunch of books published, and he was himself uh, heavily influenced, this is directly quoting McCloskey, by Charles Hoy Fort, uh -huh. early American yeah. writer who specialized in anomalous phenomena. In 1965, Gaddis had a book published entitled Invisible Horizons, True Mysteries of the Sea, in which he related the loss of the three Flannan Isle lightkeepers. In the book, he recounts those logbook entries that Forrest just mentioned, and he also uh, makes mention of the chair and the half-eaten meal. So he's really just kind of fictionalizing it and playing it up, which I think is a disservice to Fort, personally. <laughs> he's, but, how dare he to um, the patron saint of our recording studio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you have to take that part of the, the details with a grain of salt. But the thing about this story is, and this is the first thing that struck me, is that even if you take the tumbled chair and the half-eaten meal out of the equation... Oh, and here's the other thing, by the way. This whole thing is only 28 years after the Mary Celeste was discovered. Mm -hmm. And it had those details in it as well, if you can remember. And so it's still in the minds of people. And those details that are in the poem wound up in several articles of the day about the Flannan Isle disappearance. Right. So that's really fascinating. But then the other thing is this story, even without those details, is still pretty mysterious and amazing and compelling. So it doesn't really need, in my opinion, the overturned chair and the half-eaten food on the table. But it's like you were saying off the air earlier today. It adds that component to it that seems to, you know, help the story have legs in terms of its propagation oh, well, as, as a legend. Yeah, no, no, no. There are good story elements. We talk about this all the time and, and where, you know, and people like to point to this as a red flag with certain stories. But there's a right amount, I think, and, you know, B-level and even some good literature 
where that was my point is that people thought like Kincaid's cave. It's like, well, that's a Joseph Mulhattan story. It's like, well, yeah, he went too far though. For me, you don't go that far with certain story elements. Like there's no rivers of diamonds. You could say that there's a very strange looking uh, Asian looking statue, Buddhist statue that should not be in the Grand Canyon, but you don't go too far. And so what we see here though, like what makes every great disappearance story, especially maritime ones, I guess, yeah, especially maritime ones, ghost ships, what happens? You get on board and yeah, everyone's gone. That's creepy. We don't know where they went, but it's even like with the Mary Celeste, what makes it better? It's like you throw in a little element, like the tea kettle was still on. There was a half eaten plate of eggs that were still warm. So what makes it a better story is that they were just here like a minute ago. And you where did they go? Missed you them. Ju- <laughs> you yeah. just missed them. You just missed them, which makes it all the more creepy, in my opinion. And, and it's a good story element. So sometimes you see those kind of things get thrown in, I think. Um, well, yeah, I, if you'd have been here just a little bit earlier, it could have happened to you. <laughs> it could have happened to you. Yeah, in, in this case, look, it, it's somebody writing a poem. Maybe, again, it helps the rhyme, the meter. You're using a little license, but that gets woven into the legend and the lore for the rest of this story going on. But as far as we can tell and other researchers, that was kind of made up. But on the other hand, maybe it does make it seem a little more strange in that there's even less clues now. Like I said, if you saw a tipped over chair and there was a half-eaten meal, somebody was, you know, halfway through lunch, but suddenly had to get up, well, there was an emergency. That, to me, sounds like the case. You had to leave whatever you were doing, break the rules there, because two of the other guys immediately needed your help while you were there tending the lighthouse and being stationary like you're supposed to. So, but we didn't have that. The pots were clean. Everything was put away. It was reset. The lamps, I believe, had oil in them. They were cleaned and and wicks trimmed. Everything was ready to go. Everything was ready to go. It was clear that whatever had happened had happened before dark. Exactly. And so the only thing that didn't happen because of time was that the clock stopped because it had not been wound. So some time had passed. But in a sense, like you can look at more strange, adding more strange details to the story if you're trying to embellish it or pump it up or inflate it. On the other hand, the fewer details means maybe a bigger mystery. Hey, this is Bullshit. And you're listening to... The Sushi Legend. Now, back to the show. So, as these three volunteer seamen from the Hesperus and Joseph Moore, who's, this is his job, he's got to do now, and he's not that happy about it, or he's really apprehensive, shall we say. (laughs) There's a weird, creepy, vanishing mystery. I can only imagine he hopes he's not next. Who knows what it is? Sea monsters. Those are certainly some crazy out there theories, but nobody knows anything at this point. And of course, this is the turn of the century. So they stay behind while the Hesperus sails back to Lewis Isle. And on December 26th, 1900, the captain of the Hesperus, Jim Harvey, finally sends a telegram to the Northern Lighthouse Board, which reads... He actually, he sent it to both the board and to the, of course, the master of the Hesperus. So, right, yes, he, exactly. But he sent the same, the same one to both of them. This is what it says. A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the Occasional, have disappeared from the island. On our arrival there this afternoon, no signs of life was to be seen on the island. Fired a rocket, but as no response was made, managed to land Moore, who went up to the station but found no keepers there. 
The clocks were stopped, and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night coming on, we could not wait to make further investigation, but we'll go off again tomorrow morning to try and learn something as to their fate. I have left more, McDonald, Bowie Master, and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. Will not return to Oban until I hear from you. I have repeated this wire to Muirhead in case you are not at home. I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes if you wish to wire me. So that's the telegram that Captain Harvey sent to both the Master of the Hesperus and to NLB Superintendent Robert Muirhead, which I have read from Keith McCloskey's book, Lighthouse, The Mystery of the Aileen Moore Lighthouse Keepers. So uh, Yeah. Well, what's interesting here is that this guy's a sea captain, and those guys aren't slouches generally. They don't give you a, a ship if you're a, uh, you know, if you have poor judgment. And his immediate decision about what happened, that really high sustained winds happen all the time at this island, gale force winds. There's nothing to stop it coming over the North Atlantic. They may have been blown over the cliffs. You would not survive that. You'd go right into the water and the probably the heavy oilskin garments would sink you right to the bottom, uh, to J.V. Jones' locker. Or they may have been trying to work on this crane during inclement weather, during a bad weather, and that put them over. And those are certainly two theories that survive today, I would say, these two initial things, because no one is definite. We have some ideas of the most likely things that happened. But yeah, being blown over the cliffs is one, or somehow there was an accident trying to secure a crane during the storm. So that's the report from like the first authority figure, the captain of the Hesperus. And after that, the men, they're working on the lighthouse, keeping it maintained. And of course, they're searching. You got nothing else to do during your downtime there. So you're searching all over the island for anything that might be a clue as to what happened. And I'm sure Moore, Joseph Moore, is really anxious to find out because, again, this is his job. He's remaining behind. And if he wants to keep his job, he's going to have to keep working there. So everything looks intact on the inside, as we said, for the most part. On the outside, though, the east landing looks pretty untouched, kind of regular. However, the west landing, where there's a kind of a notch in the island, I believe, near where this boat landing is, because there's no beaches. It's really rocky, and the cliffs are very steep and sheer uh, around most of it. But there was some damage here, storm damage. A box that contained ropes, I believe, that's about 108 feet, 33 meters or so, that's above sea level, that was broken open. And uh, I think the ropes that were inside it, that was mostly what the contents were, those were all over the place, strewn about. There were iron railings, for these walkways, these kind of really steep stairs and walkways, those were bent over. So something of massive force, most likely a wave, had bent those. The iron railings that were by the path, that we're talking about the iron railway there for the pulley rail cars that were operating with the small steam engine, some of the track, the iron railway was ripped out from the concrete. There was a, a huge rock that they figured weighed more than a ton that had been dislodged. And of course, at the very top of the cliff, some 200 feet from sea level there, about 60 meters, there was turf that had been ripped away from the edge of the cliff, maybe about as far as like 33 feet or so. 
And um, obviously, some kind of really bad weather, some kind of event, a rogue wave perhaps, had caused this massive amount of damage. So in 1900, of course, the police aren't called, or the FBI, they're not really the authority to go check this out. Let's leave it to the people who know lighthouses and this kind of thing uh, best, the National Lighthouse Board. We'll let them determine what happened, file a report, investigate this clearly, and we will abide by their ruling. And so who comes out but the superintendent of lighthouses, Robert Muirhead. And this lighthouse here in Eileen Moore, which is kind of the tallest point there in this little small cluster of islands in this area, this was his pet project. He handpicked these guys to work this lighthouse himself and was there really involved with this whole project. And of course, the fact that these guys were gone, he'd gotten to know so well, was devastating, you know, and he was... Um, I don't want to say traumatized, but it upset him greatly, of course, that, you know, because he put them there. And what happened to them? So he's sent to go investigate this mystery. And I would say he's extra motivated to find out what happens because, of course, he was just there the summer before, in 1900, you know, before this December happened, working with these guys, going over the final uh, mechanics and, and maintenance of this place because this structure was new. This lighthouse was less than a year completed. So it was brand new. He was right there. I think he was there maybe 10 days before this incident, Superintendent Muirhead, with his own wife. Yes, he was. Yeah. And basically yep. he's there going over everything. And unfortunately, he would be the last man to see them alive. So you can imagine how, you know, this is weighing on him to come up with an answer. Yeah, Muirhead did a pretty thorough investigation. He went, he searched the island over. He tried to figure out, he saw where the damage was on the western landing. He saw that there was no damage on the eastern landing. And he was trying to draw his conclusions. It is important to note, however, that at no point were any police or any official investigations made at the island. Back then, that just wasn't something that you did in this scenario. It was up to him to try and figure it out. And now if you had three people disappear some sort of investigative branch is going to come and do a criminal investigation. But that's just not where that sort of stuff was at this point. So it really fell on him to try and figure out what had gone wrong, and he took it very personally. And he put together a pretty long and intense report for the NLB, for the Northern Lighthouse Board. And you can read that report in McCloskey's book. It's pretty fascinating. You can find it online and other places as well. I would like to read the last paragraph of it because I think it really points to his frame of mind. I would desire to record my deep regret at such a disaster occurring to keepers in this service. I knew Ducat and Marshall intimately, and MacArthur the occasional well. They were selected on my recommendation for the lighting of such an important station as Flannan Islands, and as it is always my endeavor to secure the best men possible for the establishment of a station, as the success and contentment at a station depends largely on the keepers present at its installation, this of itself is an indication that the board has lost two of its most efficient keepers and a competent occasional. I was with the keepers for more than a month during the summer of 1899, when everyone worked hard to secure the early lighting of the station before winter, and working along with them, I appreciated the manner in which they performed their work. I visited Flannan Islands when the relief was made as lately as the 7th December, and have the melancholy recollection that I was the last person to shake hands with them and bid them adieu. So mm. uh, you can see it's really sticking with him. You yeah. know, he knew these guys and 
you know, that station was important to him. And as he said, they were the guys that helped open it. And they're critical to it getting off the ground and functioning properly. Right, right. So I'm sure he can't help but wonder what went wrong. You know, if the buck stops with the PLK, with the principal lightkeeper, which in this case was Ducat, on the island, the next step up from that is him. Because he's the one that put the lighthouse there in the first place. Right. And then he put this team there. And now this team is gone. And he's going to feel a responsibility for that. As he said, it's it saddened him to think that he was the last person to see them alive. Yeah. So that's my point is that uh, he's not going to just phone this one in, shall we say, or telegraph this one in. He's going to really look at the clues as best he can. And also, you know, nowadays you have the uh, NTSB come in and if there's an accident or a major transportation thing and figure out what happened here with the air travel or maritime travel, you know, in conjunction with the FBI possibly. But these are the uh, authorities at the time. They know this situation the best. Again, he was right there. He knows this better probably than anyone still around. So he does an investigation and he does come up with a report and he has a conclusion that makes a lot of sense that essentially it was a massive wave, or what we have talked about before is a rogue wave coming out of nowhere. And the reason that he came to this conclusion was the shape of the landings, how damaged the landings were, and the evidence that was left behind by this destruction. Because again, it's not like there's not a lot of other clues to go by. This is really what's left. So as we said, the East Landing remained pretty much untouched, but the West Landing had a lot of destruction. So as we talked about before, the box of ropes that was, uh, I think, kind of wedged in a crevice there, that had been broken open, the ropes uh, scattered. Now, this box is like 90 feet above sea level. So think of that, how tall this wave would have had to have been to reach that box and smash it open. You know, rails bent. That's a 10-story building. There you go, yeah. And And this is a time at which the idea of a rogue wave or a wave that large was really kind of mythical. It was not something that had been confirmed as right. existing. Well, I think in modern day, uh, one of the largest waves ever recorded in the Atlantic, I believe, at 90 feet, was seen in the area. Now, these guys, again, they know that this area gets a lot of bad weather. They were not, I don't think they'd spent years there because, again, this point was new, but they're familiar with Western Scotland and the uh, Outer Herbrides, which is the collection of islands off the west coast of Scotland. And, uh, you know, certainly places like Shetland, they, they all get really bad weather. And so these guys are very experienced. And what they knew, part of the procedure is that in really rough weather, you batten down the hatches, you bolt the windows uh, shut with the shutters, you, you lock the door, you don't go outside. That's just part of their procedure because uh, you could very easily get swept over and they'll never find you again. So something was going on here that led these men outside, possibly, in probably really bad weather. But was it really a wave? Because although that sounds the most likely due to the nature of the evidence or whatever was left behind in this destruction, and one of the, the theories is that these guys went down to work on this crane as stated uh, by the captain of the uh, Archtor, or Arctor, I'm not sure. I think uh, it's one of those two, Archtor, that uh, that's probably what happened because we've seen this in New York when there's a bad storm, these uh, building cranes get toppled. They're catching a lot of wind. So that's one theory. And that's the conclusion that Muirhead comes to is that, uh, again, it's a, it's a giant wave. However, 
He's not completely convinced, I don't believe. There's still some doubt there because there's still some things that don't line up with that theory. By the way, we don't have pictures of the cranes. We have pictures of the bases that they were on, but I'm actually reasonably certain that they're pretty small, that they're not much bigger than a, a lifeboat dabbit, I don't think, because they're just designed to haul things and, you know, supplies in and out of boats and into the uh, rail cars and that right. sort of thing which makes it even more destructive because to destroy a smaller, stouter crane like that would be harder than a large, unwieldy crane like the ones you're talking about in New York. The amount of force that would have had to come to do that is, right. is mind-blowing. But as you said, he may not be completely convinced. And the other thing that's a side of his humanity was how bad he felt for third assistant lighthouse keeper Joseph Moore, the one who first went up alone to try and find his co-workers. Right. He wrote uh, in his official report, Muirhead did, to the NLB on January 8th of 1901, I may state that as Moore was naturally very much upset by the unfortunate occurrence and appeared very nervous, I left A. Lamont seaman on the island to go to the light room and keep more company when on watch for a week or two. If this nervousness does not leave Moore, he will require to be transferred. But I am reluctant to recommend this, as I would desire to have one man at least who knows the work of the station. So mm -hmm. he wanted to have him there because he was the only guy who had experience there. And uh, the whole idea of that lighthouse has fallen apart before his eyes at this point. So we talk about what's needed to even start the construction on this place. Everything on that island, every bit of construction material, supplies, pathways, concrete, iron all had to be hauled up, I believe, at least 140 feet of, of sheer cliff to get it up there. And talk about, you know, pulling that up from a boat that's rocking on really choppy waves. Not easy. It's a daunting feat to build this thing in the first place and then to keep it operating. And so it's amazing they, they got anything built. Again, this is before there were landings. To build a landing, you had to get the uh, supplies in place and carve out a space and, you know, and set concrete and all that. So... Uh, it's kind of an amazing feat of engineering, but once it's in place, the treachery is not over yet. So yeah, pretty solid theory, right? A massive storm, because, you know, here's what blows me away. Sure, a crane has got some mass. Again, it's catching wind, as we say. Even a box, you know, water weighs a lot. A box getting smashed into by a ton of water is going to make an impact. But think about a, an iron railing, which water should go around fairly easily. Well, enough heavy water and a massive wave bent these railings, these iron railings. So it's all sounding good, but like we just said... Even Muirhead, in his own report, he thought himself that this giant wave theory may not be as clear-cut as people think it is, and that, yes, there was bad weather all around this time period, but the weather and the possibility of this wave may not have lined up with the actual disappearance of these lighthouse keepers. So if we look at the last recorded activity normally by these three lighthouse keepers, because again, this log, uh, their activities, them logging, the act of logging these activities and their daily chores, uh, it's kind of sacred to the operation of the lighthouse. So what happens is that they first write down on a slate with chalk, you know, weather conditions, what their chores were, what things were completed, anything unusual, or uh, if it was routine, and then that gets transferred into a log with paper and pen, formally recorded, but it first goes up on a slate. And so the last kind of recorded activity was about 9 a.m. on that day that they believe that they vanished. 
and it didn't seem to be totally out of the ordinary. Again, bad weather's coming, they're noticing that, but certainly not like what the lore uh, and, uh, and Gaddis would later say, that uh, they were all uh, distraught and praying out loud and, and uh, weeping openly. They were just probably a little more aware of what was about to come, which was a really bad storm, it seemed like. But again, they have many years of experience. They're prepared for this kind of thing. So I'd like to quickly point out that uh, the last day that McKenzie sighted the light from the mainland was the 7th. So uh-huh, right. that's a good seven days that we know the light was working because we have this entry going up to the 15th on the slate, I believe, right. on the day they vanished where they, they didn't report any problems in their log or on the last day on the slate. So exactly uh, that was seven days that McKenzie couldn't see the light anyway. Right. So here's a good point is that it's not clear cut and it's not all lining up cut and dried the way that I think Robert Muirhead would like to have it so he can say mystery solved to put this to rest and know what happened to these guys and when. There's some good theories, you know, that aren't that crazy, but it doesn't solve every answer. Like a lot of these mysteries, it doesn't answer every question that's out there. It's close. And eventually you're, you look, you got to write a report. You got to settle on something and that's what he did, but it was never really that satisfying. And that's part of the risk and responsibility of being a lighthouse keeper is that they put you in dangerous areas where ships could also be in danger. So usually there's bad weather. And that's one thing that uh, lighthouses around the world share in common. And you had a, a passage you wanted to read about one of the Great Lakes lighthouses. Yes. Uh, one of our researchers, uh, Marissa Ball, who uh, is really good at finding uh, some articles and older periodicals and that sort of thing, found this in an article written by Jim Feldman in uh, 2001 entitled, What Do You Do Up Here? Tales of a Lake Superior Lighthouse Keeper. This is from the uh, Wisconsin Magazine of History in their summer edition. This was on page 9 and 10. And uh, she thought this was really compelling. And I agree with her about what a lighthouse is like during foul weather. Quote, the lighthouse becomes a different place during a storm. Ordinarily a charming bucolic place, during a storm it becomes a haunted house. None of the windows fit anymore, and the wind buffeting the house seeps around the edges of the windows, rustling the curtains. The floorboards moan, the doors creak, the hatch to the outside of the tower doesn't close properly, so it rattles in a strong wind sending drafts and strange noises down the stairs. Being in the lighthouse during a nighttime storm makes it seem for all the world as though shades of the past keepers want to come in and take shelter. End quote. Well, there you go. Uh, I gotta say, it's well known for those who have read up on this story that the paranormal angle, the supernatural angle, is widely considered especially with a lot of the uh, the local population, and especially at the time. They had a lot of local legends and beliefs about possible supernatural forces going on that they were using as conclusions, possibly, to this mystery. And it could include spirits, ghosts who inhabit a boat, who ride around the Seven Hunters, which is the local uh, nickname for these islands, the Flannan Isles. It could have been, believe it or not, a once ruling race of pygmy men. And I'm not, (laughs) I know it sounds kind of crazy, but 
that's a medieval belief and, and even earlier than that, or just generally just something bad spiritually, because what's also seeming to line up, much like the Mary Celeste, is that there's bad mojo here. There's bad luck with this rock. It might be cursed. Here's something that was kind of interesting. We talked about the ship, the Archtor, uh, who first spotted or noticed, uh, made a note that the light was not coming from the lighthouse. Within 48 hours of trying to get back to port, hit a rock and almost sank, but made it into port. Well, 12 years later from this incident, it vanished without a trace. Hasn't been seen to this day. Exactly. So uh, that's a little odd. A lot of people have made a connection there. Y- y- again, it was, uh, this place is tainted somehow. This outpost, you know, when you get stationed to this rock, as it's kind of known locally as well, was not a good assignment. It made people nervous. It certainly made more nervous, right? I think taking that posting especially after the three previous guys had uh, disappeared uh, mysteriously. Oh, yeah. He didn't want to be there. And and he got rotated out in uh, March of the following year. Right. And uh, by all accounts was pleased to leave. Right. So as we'll be seeing in part two, where we try to really pick apart this mystery and look at all the clues that were left and, and of course, all of the theories, some scientific, (laughs) meteorological, oceanographic, all the uh, the normal reasons or possibilities, but also including the folklore, the legends, the spiritual uh, possibilities of what a lot of people in the area had believed and may still believe to this day, because going back to the Middle Ages and even pre-Christian beliefs and settlements there, this place was used as a burial ground. There are markers. There are pre-Christian grave markers. We'll talk about bones that have been found, and we'll talk about uh, various theories in part two about what happened. But uh, generally, as it's seen, again, by a lot of people from the area, this place is sacred. This place is hallowed ground. And putting a lighthouse there, you may have just disturbed the dead. That's going to wrap it up for part one of our series on the Flannan Isle Lighthouse Keepers. We're dark next week, but we'll be back for part two the week after that. Stay tuned after the credits tonight to hear a reading of the poem Flannan Isle by Wilfred Wilson Gibson. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on at Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hello, everyone. This is Matt Villeneuve. Hi, I'm Aaron LaCroix. LaCroix. Hey. LaCroix. Yeah. I'd like to be on Paul on Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Flannan Isle by Wilfred Wilson Gibson. Though three men dwell on Flannan Isle to keep the lamp alight, as we steered under the lee, we caught 
no glimmer through the night. A passing ship at dawn had brought the news, and quickly we set sail to find out what strange thing might ail the keepers of the deep sea light. The winter day broke blue and bright, with glancing sun and glancing spray, as o'er the swell our boat made way, as gallant as a gull in flight. But as we neared the lonely isle, and looked up at the naked height, and saw the lighthouse towering white, with blinded lantern that all night had never shot a spark of comfort through the dark. So ghostly in the cold sunlight it seemed that we were struck the while with wonder all too dread for words. And as into the tiny creek we stole beneath the hanging crag, we saw three queer, black, ugly birds, too big by far, in my belief, for guillemot or shag, like seamen sitting bolt upright upon a half-tide reef, but as we neared, they plunged from sight without a sound or spurt of light. And still too mazed to speak, we landed and made fast the boat and climbed the track in single file, each wishing he was safe afloat on any sea, however far, so it be far from Flannan Isle. And still we seemed to climb and climb as though we'd lost all count of time and so must climb forevermore. Yet, all too soon, we reached the door, the black, sun-blistered lighthouse door that gaped for us ajar. As, on the threshold, for a spell, we paused, we seemed to breathe the smell of lime wash and of tar, familiar as our daily breath, as though it were some strange scent of death. And so, yet wondering, side by side, we stood a moment, still tongue-tied, and each with black foreboding eyed the door, ere we should fling it wide, to leave the sunlight for the gloom, till, plucking courage up at last, hard on each other's heels we passed into the living room. Yet as we crowded through the door, we only saw a table spread for dinner, meat and cheese and bread, but all untouched and no one there. As though when they sat down to eat, ere they could even taste, alarm had come and they in haste had risen and left the bread and meat, for at the table head a chair lay tumbled on the floor. We listened, but we only heard the feeble cheeping of a bird that starved upon its perch, and, listening still without a word, we set about our hopeless search. We hunted high, we hunted low, and soon ransacked the empty house. Then o'er the island to and fro, we raged to listen and to look in every cranny, cleft, or nook that might have hid a bird or mouse. But, though we searched from shore to shore, we found no sign in any place, and soon again stood face to face before the gaping door, and stole into the room once more as frightened children steal. Aye, though we hunted high and low, and hunted everywhere, of the three men's fate we found no trace of any kind in any place, but a door ajar and an untouched meal and an overtoppled chair. And as we listened in the gloom of that forsaken living room, a chill clutch on our breath, we thought how ill chance came to all who kept the flannen light and how the rock had been the death of many a likely lad. 
how six had come to a sudden end and three had gone stark mad, and one whom we'd all known as friend had leapt from the lantern one still night and fallen dead by the lighthouse wall. And long we thought on the three we sought and of what might yet befall. Like curs, a glance has brought to heel. We listened, flinching there, and looked and looked on the untouched meal and the overtoppled chair. We seemed to stand for an endless while, though still no word was said. Three men alive on Flannan Isle, who thought on three men dead. <laughs>